0: Hello, and welcome to episode number 83 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Zach Diamond, and I am a middle school music teacher in D.C., where, of course, I implement Modern Classrooms, and I'm also a Modern Classrooms mentor. Tonight's episode is going to be really fun. We are going to be addressing and hopefully debunking some misconceptions about self-pacing. So I'm super happy to be joined by a powerhouse panel of Modern Classrooms MVPs, We have got some returning guests and also a brand new guest to the podcast. Up first, we've got Andrea Marr, a Distinguished Modern Classrooms educator, a Modern Classrooms mentor, and a fifth grade teacher at Stanley Boyd School District in Wisconsin. Andrea, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Up next, we've got another returning guest, Distinguished Modern Classrooms educator and mentor as well, Beth Benavides, who is a fourth grade teacher in Waterloo, Wisconsin. Beth, welcome back. Hi, Zach. Nice to be here. And last but not least, we're joined by our new guest, John Tyler, who is also a distinguished modern classrooms educator and a modern classrooms mentor. And that's what I meant when I said a modern classrooms powerhouse panel. John is a middle school social studies teacher and an ELA teacher in Chicago public schools. So welcome, John, to your first time on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Zach. I'm really excited to join the podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited too. This is going to be a really fun topic. I've actually been looking forward to this this episode since Tony Rose and I started planning out this season because there are a lot of misconceptions about self-pacing, and I'm really excited to sort of tackle them and, and deconstruct them a little bit and hopefully uh, show that many of them are not, in fact, true. They are misconceptions. Uh, before we dive into that, though, I would like to give you all an opportunity just to introduce yourselves to the listeners. So, Go ahead and tell us a little bit more about who you are, where you teach, what you teach, and how you started your Modern Classroom's journey. Beth, why don't you go first?
2: Hi. So I teach fourth grade in Waterloo, Wisconsin. Um, I started looking um, into, I first heard Kareem talk about self-pacing and the Modern Classroom Project in spring of 2020. I took the free course that summer, um, but didn't actually start implementing in my classroom until last year in the spring of 2021. Um, then I started this school year implementing in math and then recently started some um, elements of the model in social studies and reading because um, I teach all subjects. And it's been really exciting to see it in action in my classroom.
0: Yeah, I bet. That's awesome. Andrea, how about you? Why don't you go next?
3: Um, Well, it feels great for Beth to kind of start this off because she's the person who introduced it to me. So, um, she and I both listened to Cult of Pedagogy podcast, and so she took the free course. I jumped in on the free course, and we were off to the races collaborating. I implemented it fully this year, specifically in math. My goal was just to, like, rock star it in one subject at a time. I do teach everything as well, so I teach fifth grade in Wisconsin as well. And um, I've loved it. I've loved every second of it and I haven't looked back. I've gotten my team on board with it and we're going to just, we just keep diving in. I've implemented it a tad in writing. Um, Next year, my goal will be to do it in reading, but I've loved, loved, loved being a mentor. Um, My mentees have been amazing and it's been so fun collaborating with everyone and just being a part of the Modern Classroom family and just the welcoming environment.
0: Yeah. No, I completely share that enthusiasm. Both of you. I mean, it's been amazing and I I, I will never look back now. I'm teaching this way forever. So I totally, uh, re- that resonates with me. John, how about you? Tell us more about yourself.
1: Yeah, thanks. So as Zach mentioned, I teach at Tarkington Elementary on the south side of Chicago, seventh grade social studies and ELA, specifically writing from that ELA standpoint. And my modern classroom's journey, I can actually pin it to a date. It was November 8th, 2020, because that was when episode 158 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast came out. And I remember I was just so discouraged with remote learning and all of the things that came with that. And um, my colleague Robin and I had been talking for a long time about is there a way to do some element of self-pacing within a middle school classroom? And we tried a bunch of different things, all of which failed miserably. And um, so right when I finished listening to the podcast, I actually called Robin at like five o'clock at night and um, was like, hey, I think this is the thing we've been looking for. So from there, we both took the free course. We started a PLC at our school with the help of our instructional coach. Um, I took the Summer Institute, became a mentor, became a DMCE, and um, now I'm also the Chicago ambassador for Modern Classrooms. So I, likewise, am just kind of a fanboy, and I am all on board for Modern Classrooms.
0: That's that's awesome. You know, I love, there's a lot of love on from our guests on this podcast for the Cult of Pedagogy podcast and Jennifer Gonzalez in general. I think that um, you know, there's a bunch of episodes that Kareem has guested on and explained different parts of the model, and I'm going to link all three of them in the show notes. Uh, so if listeners to this podcast somehow haven't also already heard those, you should check them out because definitely a lot of people come to the Modern Classrooms Project from those uh, Cult of Pedagogy episodes. Absolutely. Cool. Let's, uh, let's dive into these misconceptions. Basically, what I did to structure this discussion is to just sort of make a list of just misconceptions that I have heard or that questions that people have asked that have sort of revealed the misconception in their thinking. Um, and I just kind of want to run right down the list and tackle them. What do you all think? Yeah, that sounds That's great. Good to it. Me. All right. So the first one I want to talk about is the idea that there are no deadlines in a self-paced class, or sort of that we basically just let the students do whatever they want all year. We give them all the work and then let them just have at it. So how would you address that misconception? And I guess more more specifically, how do you structure the time in a self-paced class? And that may be the time of a single class period or of a unit or of the entire school year.
1: So I definitely resonate with this misconception. As a PLC leader, this is one of the misconceptions that comes up the most often. The idea that we are just giving students all of this work and letting them go at it. I want to emphasize that for me, self-pacing does not mean a removal of any sort of deadline. What it looks like instead is a removal of rigid deadlines. In um, a standard classroom, you usually have the teacher teaching one thing one day and immediately moving on the next day, regardless of what percentage of the class understood it, or if there's a high enough percentage, maybe doing a reteach. But what this looks like in a modern classroom is more students working on sort of chunked subsets of a unit at a time. So what I do have is solid deadlines for mastery checks. So for particular subsets of a unit, students have uh, a week or two weeks or however much time they're given for that subset to work on the classwork, but then by that given date, let's call it Friday, they are expected to have taken the mastery check. And if they haven't uh, done that by then, then I'm actually pulling small groups. I'm working more one-on-one with students to scaffold and get them. there. Uh, I would agree that it's not a good model to just give students all of the work for multiple units at a time. That definitely needs to be scaffolded.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. This is, you mentioned that this is a very common misconception and it's the first one that I thought of. That's why I put it first. Uh, and yeah, 100% building in those structures is, is part of how you make self-pacing work. It's not just sort of a free for all. Yep. Exactly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that for me, the self-pacing comes within a unit. And so, um, talking specifically with math, um, cause I've been doing the model with math the longest, um I still give summative assessments um that are separate from my mastery checks and the summative assessments typically have a a, a hard date um sometimes right. you know if I notice that the whole class is you know behind pace I'll I'll adjust that um deadline but only by a day or two um and that's usually because it's a problem with with my pacing that I set up right like what how long I thought the unit would take but I still give summative assessments and students still take it regardless of where they are um, in the lessons and so with that i mean just like in a traditional setup you know you, you take a unit test on a certain day so that that's not any different but it's the time within the in the unit that they're able to work you know ahead of pace or get additional time on on a learning concept so i think that that's where the self-pacing comes in for me i also as an elementary teacher use my mastery checks which we call exit tickets as kind of gates within um the unit and so students Um, I know that everyone does it different, and a lot of times I hear recommendations for students to take the mastery check and then just continue working until the teacher... um, like checks it for mastery. But I actually do have students stop after a mastery check. And then they they work on kind of maybe what would be considered should do's or aspire to do's um, until I give them the go ahead to keep going. And so I think for elementary students, that's really works well for me just to make sure that they're not rushing through it. And then I can tackle any misconceptions that show on the mastery check right away. And, And when I say they have to wait for me, I mean, it's typically you know, if I'm not working with other students, I'll, I'll still check it right away as soon as they turn it in. Um, but it might be 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something like that until I get a chance to, to look at it. And so that's kind of another way that they're self-pacing, but there still is that kind of, the master check as a gate, as a way to kind of slow them down so I can make sure that they're on the right, right track before moving on within um, the unit.
0: Totally. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, like, what do you have them do in that time when they've done the master check and then you don't allow them to move on? But having them do... You know the should use and the aspire to use is a great is a great option, mm-hmm. right? Like that's we have that built into the model already, and so you don't want to let them move on to the next thing, especially if it requires mastery of the previous thing before you've checked it. So that that makes that makes total sense.
2: Yeah. And another you know, thing is, is it kind of helps me if I have students that are, are really like really rocking ahead of pace um, because I know a, a lot of times that one thing that people ask about is like how to motivate students to do should or aspire to do's. So if I have a student who's really ahead of pace and they turn in an, an exit ticket, um, I can intentionally not check their exit ticket right away. So they have to do those should and aspire to do's. And then, you know, as teachers, we always prioritize things. And so sometimes that just naturally happens. Like if I see someone two lessons ahead turn in an exit ticket, but I'm working with someone who's behind pace, I don't feel guilty about not checking their exit ticket right away because I I have to prioritize maybe my student that's behind pace. And then they've got kind of a menu of options that are hopefully um, engaging and motivating that they can then work on while they wait for me to, to check their exit ticket.
0: Totally. Well, I guess what's definitely coming across is that it is not a free for all, right? Like exactly. It, there is a lot of structure. Andrea, how about you? You haven't uh, gotten to contribute yet.
3: Yeah, um, lots of similarities to what I've heard. I definitely, want, I would say I work backwards. You know, I've taught math for many years. I've taught the same resource for many years. So I've had the same units and I'm mandated to follow, you know, those. And so I've used my knowledge of just my past experience to kind of pace out the unit. Like I know it typically takes 15 days to get through this if I was trudging through a lesson a day. Um That might be multiple skills, you know, not exactly 15 skills, but 15 lessons within our resource. And so then I'll work backwards backwards and I will say, okay, after 15 days, that would put a summative assessment at around this time. And then I notice that I have like, let's say, seven skills within the unit. And then I'll kind of just pace that out. They usually typically are a few days to a skill. Um, and that pacing and that strategy has been working pretty good for me. So my soft deadlines would be with my mastery checks just so kids can figure out and stay on pace for the entire unit to get to that summative assessment. And I, too, have that hard date of the end of unit assessment where if kids aren't done with the whole game board, we do it anyways. Um, but if it were a large number of kids, I would be flexible and I would adjust My kids still have access to all of my past game boards, so when we have flex time at the end of the day or different things, they can always go back and work through those. So for my aspire to-dos, I gear those more towards the end of my unit, and I never really actually communicate to my kids what my should-dos are and what my aspire to-dos are. And so the goal is that they get through all of my must-dos like earlier on in the game board, and then they're just working through those more in depth in the later half of the game board. And so if they don't actually finish the game board, it's not really a big deal because those yeah. are my should do and my aspire to do's. Um, but then they're getting everything done that they need to.
0: Yeah. No, I do something very similar. And that's a great point. You kind of with, withhold that information from them. But then if they don't make it to the end, it's, it's sort of like a sort of a cushion, right? Yes. And if they don't make it to the end, then they they're still getting through all the content they have to actually master. And you said something else that interested me a lot, which is that you plan the unit um, backwards as if you were going to teach it traditionally one lesson per day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do that exact same thing. And I guess getting to the sort of the heart of the question or this misconception that we're giving the kids just all the work, like, I think that we're all talking about this, but we build in checkpoints along the way to make sure that they're, they're meeting them and not just staying on lesson one for the whole unit we do have lots of supports that we build in to structure the time and structure the self-pacing and i'm sure we'll touch on more and more of them as we move on but but yeah definitely not true that we just let the kids have at it and give them no no other supports that is the misconception and i hope that we have uh put that one to bed (laughs) all right so the next one i'd like to talk about is the idea that kids just do whatever they want in a self-paced class. You know, the kids are just in the classroom doing whatever because the teacher is not, I guess, standing up teaching them, quote unquote. So what do you do in your self-paced classes to make sure that your kids are actively engaged and and learning in your class and not just doing whatever in in the room?
3: Um, So I just feel like it's so opposite, right? It's super structured. We have the game board, which obviously controls their pathway of what they're learning, that scope and sequence. I do daily check-ins um, in the morning and just keeping close tabs. And we also do a daily check and whole class with our progress tracker, talking about what's on pace and what's not. We do goal setting so that they can make some goals for what they need to accomplish to stay on pace for the day. Um, just going over that pacing track- tracker and, you know, dictating who the small groups are. I mean, I think we have so much control even though sometimes it doesn't necessarily look like we do, kids are never really doing whatever, right? They have a goal, they have a plan, they have a path. And I I couldn't disagree more <laughs> with the misconception.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think another thing that's often forgot about when thinking about self-pacing this way is that we're still teachers. You know, like when kids are just doing whatever – we're people. We can walk over to them and redirect them. Or if necessary, we can use you know, our school's discipline systems. Like We're still there teaching the class. Um, the type of control that we are giving up may not be the, the same type of control that, that leads to learning. It's just sort of a compliance that I think people sort of expect in a classroom that doesn't equate to, to engagement and learning.
3: You know, when you're up lecturing in front of the class, I feel like it's so hard to see when kids are really, truly doing whatever and not listening to you at all, right? But like when you are now, your instruction is through those videos and those guided notes, and now you're walking and you're mingling and you're checking in, you can see so much better kids that are off task. So I think, you know, you can have tabs on them even more.
0: Totally, totally.
1: Yeah, I was kind of like silently cheering that whole time Andrea was talking because my experience also has been that students are actually usually more engaged in my modern classrooms teaching than they were previously when I was doing traditional lessons. And like she was stating toward the end, that self pacing um, is based on the progress tracker. And when we're able to use the progress tracker effectively, we actually are having some degree of control. Uh, I think a great metaphor for this is controlled chaos. You know, when we walk into when someone walks into my classroom, they're not going to see everybody working on the same thing at the same time at the same voice level, but they're more likely to see students actively engaged with the work because the model itself lends itself to uh, students being productive because I don't have the student who was absent two days last week saying, well, I can't do this assignment because I don't have the requisite knowledge. Instead, they're able to pick up where they left off. And if and when I do see a student getting off task, which obviously does happen in any classroom, modern classroom or traditional I can go over and redirect and all my resources are in that one spot on the LMS, on the website that I've created. And so I can say, okay, you're confused on this concept. Here's the instructional video I created. Why don't you rewatch this? Or, you know, in order to do this assignment effectively, you're going to need to open your book or you're going to need to have this resource open to you. And again, like Andrea said, when you're in front of the classroom, kids can look very compliant by just sitting there at their desks with their eyes on you, but we don't know what's going on behind their eyes and their heads. And so when I'm actually walking around, I can note which students I've seen making progress and which ones I haven't. I think sometimes people focus more on that chaos, but they don't recognize the level of control that actually is there
0: and the the level of learning you know i guess the the chaos will look different depending on what grade you teach all, all of us teach elementary or middle school so we don't have high schoolers who probably aren't quite as chaotic but like the the chaos does not mean that they're not learning it does not mean that they're not engaged with the work and and like you said like we can walk over to the kids we can sit down with them we can You know, Tony Rose and I were talking on the last episode about how when visitors come into modern classrooms, the teachers can sort of walk away from the class for a minute and it runs itself while the teacher talks to the visitors. But when there aren't visitors, we can dedicate that time to the students, like one student. You know, if a student needs our help, we can sit down and help them for five minutes and get them back on track.
1: Right, Zach. So I noticed what you said was that just because it looks a little chaotic doesn't mean students aren't learning. And one theme that I'll probably come back to throughout a lot of these misconceptions is the reverse of that. Just because a teacher is up in front of the room lecturing and content has been covered does not necessarily imply that genuine, authentic learning is taking place.
0: That's absolutely right.
2: One hundred percent. I've been like bobblehead nodding this entire time <laughs> while everyone else was talking. Um, I I completely agree. I think that a lot um, of this misconception probably comes from just ideas about education. You know that that, yes, that compliance equals learning or quiet equals learning. And um, I think that more and more educators are realizing that that's not true. Um, and I think that, um, you know, if you ap- approach self pacing as you approach anything else in your classroom, you introduce it, you practice it, you set expectations, you know, students will follow it. Um, and I think that students that maybe struggle with executive functioning skills are likely students that would struggle in any model. And, and I like that I can take the time to really sit with them and work with them on some of those skills. Um, that I wouldn't be able to do teaching traditionally. Like if I have a student off task during a lecture, I have to stop my lecture to redirect their behavior. But if I have a student off task during self pacing, the rest of the class continues on learning and then I can sit with that student and help them get on task. And so, um, I yeah, I, I, I agree kind of with what everyone else said that I think that there's a lot more control than it looks like and a lot more engagement for sure.
0: Yeah, no, that is such a great point. The idea that compliance and learning are the same thing, I I feel like that's going to probably, you said this, John, it's going to probably come up a lot more. Um, And I've, in my head, knowing the outline, I've been trying to think about where we're going to talk about that. Um, It's a misconception about traditional teaching, right? It's a misconception to say that kids sitting compliantly during a lecture are the ones who are learning the best. Um, And this episode feels somewhat cathartic for us. We're all like, Cheering each other on and nodding like we've seen it in action though right like it's true it really is true and we've all seen it in action and that's why all of us are so excited to to talk about this I would
2: like to say um this is just like a, a little anecdote um but my mom is a teacher you know for 30 plus years and she's awesome shout out to her and she loves to spend a day of each of her spring break visiting me and she's done that pretty much since I've been a teacher and she came in um last week, and You know, and I was feeling self-conscious because my class was very loud and they were just kind of felt like all over the place. And and afterwards, you know, she said she's like, but Beth, they were all talking about the learning. She's like, yeah, they were loud. Like, you know, I had a student cheering because he was scoring better on on the vocabulary assignment than he did the last time he took it. You know, and she's like, that's she's like, they were so engaged with what they were doing. So what if they were loud? And that was, you know, I know that. But it sometimes you just like need someone to say that to you. And and that it was really I feel like it kind of um, encompasses what we're talking about right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the reason this is so enjoyable for the four of us right now and hopefully for the listeners as well, is that like, I I don't know about you all, but I still find myself like getting annoyed with kids doing the stuff that as a traditional teacher, I would redirect them from doing. Like I still have it just ingrained in me, I guess, from having been a student in school and having been a traditional teacher for long enough, like this idea that compliance and learning go hand in hand. Um, and so it's nice to hear other people saying the same thing, right? Like, my classroom is loud sometimes. Uh, my my kids are sometimes out of my control. Uh, sometimes there are discipline problems. Like, these things happen in all classrooms. And the fact that it's self-paced and, you know, kids have to do a little bit more lift in terms of what lesson they're on individually and managing their pacing, it does not mean that they're just doing whatever. And if they are, that happens in traditional classrooms, too. It's not It's not a misconception about modern classrooms. And we have the tools to deal with it.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
3: To kind of get off that too, like same thing. But like I, for for me, we rotate like a unit of science, a unit of math, a unit of science, a unit of math. And when we're doing science, we still do our like math interventions and extra support and stuff. But like I had just gotten out of a week or a few weeks of science and I started back with math and I was like, oh, Thank goodness. <laughs> because my kids and they kind of had a sigh of relief too, like, oh, thank you. Like we're ready just to dive in and get start learning and be in control again. Like enough of my teacher blabbing up in front. Like it just felt so good to get back into the model.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's hit one more misconception before the break. Um, this one I want to talk about is the idea that teachers don't teach in self-paced classes because the students are working on different lessons. I can understand like mechanically, it can be difficult to understand uh, if you're stuck to the idea that teachers are standing up and delivering lectures as in a traditional classroom. Um, But, you know, that winds up especially coming from students, right? Like you're not teaching me. Uh, What would you say is the role of the teacher in a self-paced class?
2: Um, I think that in this, in the model allows me to do double the work. So I'm still teaching um, direct instruction through the videos, but then I'm also able to walk around and check in, help with practice, address misconceptions, all of those things that in a traditional setup, I, I could only do one or the other. So um, I think that, again, this is more may- maybe speaking to education in general, right? Just the I- the idea that I don't have to be lecturing to be teaching um, that I don't have to be maybe addressing everyone at once or everyone on the same, on the same place to still be teaching and for the students to still be learning. So um, I think that this model gives students a chance to do more um, self-directed learning than teacher directed learning, but I'm still teaching. And like you said, you know, I'm still managing classroom, the classroom, I'm managing behavior I'm meeting with students. It's just concurrent with the direct instruction that might typically be given during more of a lecture style classroom Yeah. or in a lecture style classroom.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, there's so much more to the job of teaching than standing in front of a classroom and talking. There's so much more. And we still do all of it, right? We still do a lot of it and more because we have more time.
3: To go off of that, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, we are always wishing we want more time, we want more hands, we want more of everything. And I, when I was reflecting on this question a little bit, one little word that came to me was like puppeteer. I feel like a teacher is just like behind the scenes, kind of just like slowly controlling the show, you know, like kids still have that voice and choice and they're still like learning. But, you know, ultimately... We're the one picking the practice activities, the aspire to do activities, creating the content, right? That's a huge part of it is creating the content. I wouldn't feel as comfortable with the model if it wasn't me making the videos. Like I know exactly what they're learning and how they're learning it. And the thing I enjoy the most is in this role, I get to look at data and be responsive because you know, I feel like I'm definitely not like a flip open the teacher's manual. What are we teaching today? And then what are we teaching tomorrow? Like that is not my teaching style. I like to be responsive. And this model gives you so much data that you can just like immediately know I need to do this. And sometimes I do it in the middle of the math block. And sometimes I wait for the next day. But it's really comforting knowing that I'm making an instructional decision based off of in-time data that I'm seeing with my kids.
1: I think that this misconception really comes down to a misconception about what a teacher is and what a teacher does. And so I actually wrote down, Zach, what you said. There's so much more to teaching than standing in front of a room and lecturing because In a more traditional model, that would be a heavy percentage of what I would be doing is standing in front of a room and lecturing. Not to mention as well that when I give live lectures, there are times where I'm spending more time redirecting behavior to make sure everyone's paying attention rather than actually delivering content. Um, And like Andrea said, what's beautiful is that we are making our own instructional videos. So I have heard some misconceptions about, oh, teachers rely on instructional videos, but no, that's actually us making those instructional videos. And one of the things I love about that is that if I make a five minute video, that is five solid minutes of content delivery, as opposed to if I'm giving a lecture in front of the room, I might spend 10 minutes and only give four or five minutes of actual instruction because I'm interrupted by kids needing to go to the bathroom and kids playing around in the back of the room or maybe doodling instead of listening. And when I think about why I became a teacher, for me, it's all about working as directly with kids as possible. And so by being able to clone myself with these instructional videos, I am responding to that data like and uh, Andrea said, and I'm actually able to go pull a small group of kids or um, check a student's work and give them some feedback in the moment rather than them turning in an assignment and getting a grade a week, two weeks later uh, with no opportunity to revise. So in some ways, I'm actually doing more teaching we just have to redefine what does teaching mean
0: yeah 100% 100% you know when i you you said this too when i think about why i became a teacher and what is most rewarding about being a teacher it's not like i wouldn't leave the building and be like man i gave such great lectures today uh i would be like the, the, my best days i would be like i had such great conversations with individuals or like small groups of kids that got them to really understand something like those light bulb moments with kids don't happen during the lecture or maybe they do. And I just didn't notice, but like it was definitely a sense of like in a conversation with a kid, I can help you arrive at the understanding you need. But with modern classrooms, that's all I do now. Everything that you all are saying, I I, I fully, fully agree with. And I think that this idea of redefining the role of a teacher just in general and and sort of reinterpreting what teachers actually, and this is our role. This is what we actually do. You know, modern classrooms gives us the time and the space to do it more and to do it better. I think.
1: Exactly. And in terms of those, uh, light bulb moments, I think that I'm seeing them happen a lot more, not just because I'm actually rotating around the classroom, but because Modern Classrooms gives me the freedom to create that culture of revision to where if a student doesn't understand a concept the first time, it's not just, oh, oh, you didn't get it. Here's your D. Here's your C. Go sit back down. Instead, it's, okay here's where your misconception was. Here's how we can revise it. And then that same student who's used to just being given that D, that F, whatever the case may be, is actually having the opportunity to truly master something. And you just see that light in their eyes like, oh, my gosh, I actually got it. I understood this. I got, for all intents and purposes, an A, and I get to move the block on my progress tracker.
0: Absolutely right. Folks, this is super fantastic <laughs> this is a, such a great conversation i uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a short break and when we come back we've got three more misconceptions for you that we are going to tackle
4: so we'll be right back Hi, everyone. It's Kareem here from the Modern Classrooms Project. I just wanted to share some exciting news about our big virtual summer institute this summer, the summer of 2022. Now, as many of you all know, the summer is one of the most popular times for folks to learn our model. It's a time where folks can take a step back from their normal classroom experience and really rethink and redesign their approach to teaching and learning. And this summer, we plan to train 3,000 educators this summer. Now, educators come through a variety of ways. You can enroll individually. You can enroll through a school and district partnership. And this year, we have some pretty awesome regional scholarship opportunities. These are scholarship opportunities for educators if you're located in D.C., New York City, Connecticut, Chicago, Seattle, the Twin Cities, or Tulsa. These are folks who can just apply if you're an educator in these communities. And if you get accepted, you get a full scholarship to our summer institute and some really great perks, including a $500 stipend. So check them out. You can just go to modernclassrooms.org backslash scholarships to see the right regional scholarships. And you can just go to our website and you'll see at the top announcement bar, you can learn more about our virtual summer institute, see the variety of ways you can roll individually or collaborate with us on a school or district partnership. I hope everyone's doing all right. Good luck with the rest of the year. Thank you for all that you do.
0: All right, folks, we are back with Andrea, Beth, and John, and we're going to tackle three more misconceptions for you. The next misconception I want to talk about with you all is a very common one about self-paced classes. And it's a question that comes up a lot, uh, like when we do Q&A episodes and I see it in the Facebook group and in the Slack. The idea that self-paced classes don't allow for full group activities. So full group collaborative activities, I guess maybe like a a lab and a science class or something like that. How do you all implement full group activities in your self-paced classes?
1: Yeah, so this is actually a misconception that my principal brought to me when I first suggested running a PLC for Modern Classrooms. And one piece that I really like to always refer back to is that Modern Classrooms is not a prescriptive curriculum or format. It is the very essence of flexibility. It's doing what's best for your students based on where they're at. And so collaboration happens constantly in the modern classroom. The first way is through organic collaboration, and that's when we're actually just looking at the pacing tracker and seeing, okay, student A is on the same activity as student D, those two students should work together. But on a whole class level, activities can also be planned with a self-pacing element in mind. But that hard deadline, like I said, uh, on one of the earlier misconceptions, I still have that hard deadline. And so, like, currently, I'm teaching kids a book called Enrique's Journey by Sonia Nazario. And the mastery checks for that are actually discussion groups. So when the discussion group day comes, students need to have all the materials prepared. Prepared, and then they actually engage in face-to-face interaction and whole group discussion. Um, now, of course, there's that element of helping students who are behind sort of proactively get to where they need to be so that when that whole group activity does come, they're ready and prepared with all of those materials. But you can absolutely plan whole group activities, um, and in some ways it's almost more to that because those students who might struggle a little bit, they have those must-do items done, and so they can still participate in the discussion, and maybe some students who are ahead of pace have done the should-do and aspire-to-do prep lessons, and so they might have more content to bring, but still those students who uh, were stuck on the must-do are still able to participate in that discussion, that whole group activity, and um, do so in a meaningful way. And then the last piece I'll mention is that I definitely do whole group reteach of misconceptions when I find them appropriate. Uh, Even just today, I had students working in discussion groups and I recognized that there was a particular question that a lot of students struggled with. So at the end of class, I stopped maybe five minutes early and did a whole group reteach. So that's still going on. It's just that whole group instruction is not the main crux of my instruction.
0: Yeah, no, and you made a really great point at the end there about uh, just whole group reteaches, which is not something that I thought of in the context of this question, which like I was thinking more about those really very formalized full class activities, but that's a great one. Like just in the moment, you don't have to do it at the end of class either. Like uh, if I, at the beginning of class, if my students are all working on the same thing more or less, and a bunch of them are having the same problem, I will actually stop the whole class and say, please close your computers. My school is one-to-one. They all have Chromebooks. So I'll I'll pull their attention to the front, and I actually will deliver a very short little lecture to address the questions that lots of kids are asking me. Like, you can totally do that. And like you said, there's nothing proscriptive or or like set in stone about a modern classroom. Just because we're our self-paced model doesn't mean that you can't do that. That's part of the self pacing, and I think it's also part of the learning, right? To help the kids uh, really be as successful as they can on on the activities that they're doing. Great points. Great points.
2: Yeah, I hundred I, I agree with everything that John said. Um, so I still do whole group every day, almost um, as a, a whole group mini lesson, but it's only about five minutes, and I can make it very specific to the needs that I see of my students because the actual. Content that I'm delivering from my curriculum is happening in the videos. So that's the first thing is that I I still pretty much do a whole group lesson every day. Um, The second thing that I've started doing in math is incorporating a whole group hands on activity as an anchor activity at the beginning of every unit. So, kind of a creative way to preview the concepts that we're going to be talking about, allow students to do some kind of more fun things. It's usually maybe art-based or group-based or something just to get them thinking about the concepts that we'll be learning. And then I also will do whole group um, kind of games periodically throughout the unit. Um, My school is about, um, has about 20% of students that um, speak a language other than English at home. And so vocabulary acquisition is something that my school is, really focused on. And so I'll do a blue kit or a gim kit or something like that regularly. I would say at least every week where we're using the vocabulary words from a unit in kind of a game based way. And everyone's doing that regardless of where they are in the unit. So those are some ways that I still incorporate whole group um, activities, even with the self pacing structure.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And you can totally do that. You can totally do that. There is nothing stopping you. Nothing stopping you.
2: Um, I don't have too much to
3: add. They covered pretty much everything I was going to say. I do my full group is typically some type of spiral review at the beginning of the block. Um, I will do the like intervention lesson or a whole group reteach, really, you know, minute. Try to keep it mini lesson, and I will also do the game thing as well. But you know, the opportunity is there for full group activities. I think the biggest part is just communicating to kids when that will be and having the scaffolds in place so that they can be ready for it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one thing I do want to add here is going back to what, John, you mentioned quite a while ago um, about the uh, sort of assumption that in a traditional classroom, the fact that the teacher teaches the content means that the kids learned it. Uh, that assumption, I think that, like, if you come to the to the structure of a class and then say, maybe all the kids won't be ready for the full group activity, you know, like, how will you know? Um, I would say that that same argument applies in a traditional classroom. Right. Except that here we can proactively make sure that they are ready by building in that buffer time that that you mentioned, I think, Beth, and then, you know, addressing students who are behind before we get to the collaborative or full group activity. And so we shouldn't assume that just because the teacher has taught the lessons, the kids all have learned it. And I think that this this uh, this model really allows those full group activities to really shine because we do get to make sure that every kid needs or has what they need. When they get to the the full group activity so definitely uh andrea like you said very much possible and very much uh, a part of most modern classrooms that, that i've been acquainted with uh, and certainly mine as well so let's move on to this next misconception this one is also i think very common um and the idea is that students are not able to self-pace just because they're too young, they don't have the executive functioning, they're not not organized, or they they can't self-pace because they're kids, right? Um, That's something that we hear a lot. And I would like to hear how you all respond to that.
3: Well, I mean, you know, they got to develop the skills sometime. What better time than now, you know? And obviously, Every good teacher knows the developmental level of their kids, what they're able to handle, and if they throw you a curveball, you can scaffold it a different way the next time. I mean, just to say that you're going to launch this launch this method and not have any bumps in the road is pretty naive, right? Like, this is very new to kids. They're not used to this kind of teaching. And so, at first, you will. You will see Certain kids struggle with it, and some kids need more scaffolding than others, and when you get to know their personality, and since this model also allows you to build relationships so well, I think you can even respond quicker to those and knowing what the kid or what the student will need. We talk about, like, oh, you know, we're worried so-and-so, they're falling behind. How are they going to feel about that? And I, I'm I'm, i okay with a little bit of pressure. I think it's, you know, it's okay to have that urgency there of like, this is important. This is something you need to do in order to learn and move forward. If we fail along the way, great, we're learning something. Let's keep going, you know. Um, but I never knew my students as well as I do now. And just because of that, I think I'm able to scaffold better. And and it really, the metacognition and everything involved with it, I just... They're able to recognize when they need my assistance more, when they need each other more, and I think they will surprise you.
0: Yeah, they've certainly surprised me. I mean, my students surprised me. Some of my the students who I least expected to be able to self-pace are the ones who thrive the most. It's very interesting to see.
1: Yeah, I resonate with that as well, Zach, that sometimes it's the students I didn't expect who are actually able to self-pace the best because maybe they're a very non-compliant student in- traditional setting, but just that feeling of autonomy gives them more motivation uh, to do the work at their own pace. I would also say that it is true that some students come into our classrooms without the executive functioning skills that are necessary for self-pacing, and that's where we teach it. We teach it like we teach any other skill, you know. Um, I have students come into my classroom don't know how to cite evidence yet, but I obviously don't say, okay, they don't know how to cite evidence, so that's just not going to be the expectation. Um, I say, okay, they don't have this skill yet, so what can we do to build it? Um, And then also, I think it's really important to keep in mind that everything we do, we scaffold in the appropriate way. So like I teach middle school, Andrea and Beth, you teach elementary school. And so what self-pacing looks like in your classroom and what it looks like in my classroom is going to vary based on the level of the students. So we're not just throwing them out into the ocean and saying sink or swim, we're saying, hey, these executive functioning skills are really important for not just school, but life. And so I'm going to scaffold you until you are able to do and maybe that looks like first quarter, we're only self pacing three days at a time or a week at a time. And hopefully, we'll eventually get to that place to where we can self pace for longer periods. But um, in my classroom, I do a lot of scaffolding activities for executive functioning. Like I teach them how to organize their LMS, I teach them how to organize their folders and their binders. And then from there, even time management, I'll put a visible timer up on the screen and I'll teach them methods like, okay, we're going to work for 20 minutes straight and then give ourselves a five-minute break. Or here's what you're expected to complete between uh, minute 20 and minute uh, 10. So I, I think that that development of the executive functioning skills is something that has to happen Um, like Andrea said, they have to learn at some time. And so now is the best time, especially while they are young and it doesn't feel foreign to them.
0: Yeah. I think those are such, such good points. And you, you made a really interesting connection for me. I made the connection, as you said it, between teaching the content and teaching the self-pacing, because like you said, you don't, you don't assume that students come into the class knowing how to cite evidence, but you do teach it to them. And so, we don't necessarily assume that students come into the class knowing how to self-pace, certainly not in third, fourth, fifth grade or, or middle school or even in high school. Um, but we teach it to them. We teach it to them just like we teach the content. It's it's sort of like one of the life skills that we're teaching them. It's not necessarily like in the curriculum, but it is definitely part of being a student in a modern classroom is being taught and being sort of coached in in self-pacing. So that's that's a great point. And I think that it's a great, uh, a great response to this misconception. Beth, how about you? What do you think?
2: Um, yeah, I think that executive, as, as everyone has said, exec, executive functioning skills are so important. And I think, um, I, again, I agree that what that looks like at each level is going to be different. And even within my class. So I have some students who are still working on on organization and time management and self-control. And for them, I might say to them, you're going to watch this video and then you're going to come Talk to me. Right. And then they'll come talk to me and I'll be like, great, you did it. Good job. Now go on to the practice. And so for them, the self pacing is really is really like, are you starting the video and finishing the video and able to move on? And then with other students, you know, they've got it and they're able to get out their materials and just get started and and go through it for the whole day or the whole lesson without having me to scaffold and help them. Um, so even within my classroom, the level of scaffolding for self pacing really depends on the students and their needs. Right. And I feel like um, I'm able to devote a lot more time helping students with that. Um, just because I'm the direct instruction piece and the content pieces has been put on the videos. And I and I think I said this the last time the last podcast I was on, that I was that student who was really good at school, but really not good at executive functioning, right? Like I was the student who did, not who chronic procrastinator didn't, couldn't manage my time. And it was a struggle going to college for me. It was a struggle being on my own and having to depend on myself to do of those things. And so if I can help students at nine, um, get a little bit better at that so that they are able to be more self-directed as they get older and they're expected to do that, then, then I want to do that for them.
0: Totally. Yeah, this is definitely a misconception. And it is sort of part of our job to make sure that it stays a misconception, right? To make sure that students don't just not learn how to self-pace and then totally fail our classes. <laughs> but but it is it is what we do as Modern Classrooms teacher. It's part of what the model gives us, right? And, you know, I do want to respond to something that Andrea said also about students sort of having the pressure on and, and sometimes us letting them sort of fail forward. Uh, you know, I, I wish that I had mentioned this at the very beginning of our conversation when we were talking about how we structure the time. I think that something really important in modern classrooms or in self-paced classes is sort of a fresh start opportunity at very regular intervals. And so, you know, sometimes kids who are still developing those executive functioning or or organizational skills will actually fail and they'll fail like spectacularly. And then, you know, the next day, or maybe the next week, they come into class and you say, okay, everyone is on lesson one. We're starting a new unit. This is a fresh start. And that student who failed, they're like, okay, I know what happens when I do it the wrong way now. So maybe now I'll trust my teacher when they remind me to put my phone down and get back to work, or I'll, or I'll do it myself, right? I I don't want to feel that again, and so I'm gonna stay on pace with the lessons. You know, I'm gonna complete one lesson per day or whatever it may be. Um, having that experience of of not effectively self pacing and seeing what happens, like it's just so clear in the data. You know, we had a five lesson unit, and you did one lesson, and so you. You got a F or a D, and so um, I think that letting our kids fail, at least at the very beginning of the year, um, not maliciously, but you know, not intervening so much that they don't learn to self pace, I think is an important skill for us as well.
3: If I could add about just the metacognition and the reflection piece, a little shout out to my mentee Nicole when I was reviewing her her learning design plan, she had. Every time they were doing a mastery check, they were also doing this short reflection. And she had some of those things in there. Like, what can I do better next time, you know, in my next lesson? And things like that, you know, like staying more focused and and all of those things just to reflect back on how can I be a better learner?
2: Yeah, I I wanted to just... To talk a little bit about reflection as well. Um, just the idea that when students do have that fail, and you're saying fail forward, and I love that, um, I've noticed a lot more um, good conversations between students and with me, um, kind of based on what they're observing about themselves. So, you know, they yeah. might say, you know, a friend might ask them to work with them, and they might be like, no. I think like I've heard students say, I I think we talk too much or I'm getting off task. I need to do this. You know, and that is not a conversation that I, I think naturally comes up um, maybe with other models of instruction, or I can have conversations with students and say, I notice you're behind pace. Like, what can we do? And they might say, oh, I'm think I'm getting distracted on YouTube and I need to stop doing that. And it's, you know, it's coming from them, and so the level of reflection that can come from that, um, I think, is awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've had that very conversation with some kids. Some kids are very self-aware, like they're very reflective, and they're like, "Oh, I am, I'm getting off track. I need to get back to work." It's, it's very funny to see, and very, uh, very sort of promising, you know, to see that the model is working like that. For sure. All right, so let's move on to our final misconception. So this one's actually kind of related to the the previous question about collaborating. But I want to talk more about, uh, John, what you were sort of getting at with your response to that question, which is the organic collaboration. And um, this this misconception, I think, is that students who are self-pacing, they can't collaborate, they can't work together because they're all working on different lessons at the same time, which might be true. Um, but I do think it's a misconception that kids don't collaborate in a modern classroom. And I don't mean those big collaborative activities now. I'm talking about the sort of day-to-day, minute-to-minute kids just talking to each other sort of collaboration. Um, How do you all get your students to collaborate in that sort of organic way?
2: I feel like I see a lot more um, of that natural collaboration using this model um, for a couple different reasons. One, I think I share a A public pacing tracker with students, and they're very motivated to stay on pace with their friends. Um, In my room, typically, I allow collaboration on any piece of the unit with the exception of mastery checks. And so they know if they're on the same place as their friend, they can work together. And that's very motivating for for students. Um, So with that, I mean, they're I would say most of my class is working with someone else most of the time, um, which is not, you know, always typical. Um, And then with that, too, they can see who is ahead of them. And so I have students then they know what other students they can go to to ask questions. If I'm busy or if they just want to ask a peer before they come to me for help, Um, they use the pacing tracker to see who's already mastered that and they can go ask them. So I feel like I have a lot more authentic collaboration with this model, just using the public pacing tracker.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. I've had, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but like, you know, for the first month or so of school, kids will come up to me with questions and I'll just, with them, like look at the pacing tracker and say, who's done that already? Who's mastered that lesson? And then they'll just go and talk to them. And after a month, they're going to stop coming to ask me because they'll know I'll just redirect them to some other student. And it totally works. Like now, you know, it's the end of March and kids just look at the tracker and they don't even ask me anymore. Um, it happens organically. Totally. Great point. Great point.
3: Um, I would say in my classroom, it definitely is the culture. Like I've noticed, and maybe it's just my group of kids, but they they really seem to love to work with each other, and they will reach out to each other before they reach out to me. It's like they are very confident asking someone else, and they almost see each other as experts. Like, hey, they're doing the same thing as me. They can help me with this. Um, I also use the progress tracker, Language I use that goes along with that would be like, you can work with anyone in your lane or higher. And so they look at that progress tracker and know who they can reach out to for help or who they can work with on that journal page or on that video and guided notes or whatever. Um, collaborating is always on the table. They know they can always be working with a partner except for on our mastery checks When I think about those kids where some kids, they just naturally want to collaborate. Maybe they have a best friend in the class or maybe they're just a social extrovert and they have no problem. I do have some kids who are a little more introverted and they would prefer to work by themselves. And... They tend to want to reach out to me. I think they have comfort with the fact that like I'm more accessible now, you know, like as the teacher and I'm around, like I'm accessible to them and they can kind of lean towards me and collaborate with me if they need me. But I also try to not necessarily force collaboration on them, but I do like to build games and different collaborative activities within my game board so that they can't work in isolation the entire time that they do have to branch out and play a game with someone else here or there. Um, I also do flexible seating so they know they can move around the room and and work with whoever. My classroom's pretty small, so I can't really zone it. but I was talking with one of my mentees about potentially like using table tents and having like this is where lesson one people are working and this is where lesson two people are working and so on um as another way to just kind of organically have kids confined to one area and collaborate.
0: yeah, totally. and the space it's interesting that you mentioned the space like, because kids will move around to go and work with each other. Like, I've seen this happen in my class with no input from me or no prompt mm-hmm. prompting from me at all. Like, a kid will just get up and walk over to another kid and ask them a question. And I'm like, oh, I love this. I love this.
3: That's the controlled chaos, right?
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what we mean when we say that kids aren't sitting quietly and compliantly. They're talking, but they're talking about the stuff. And it's not with who you necessarily expect. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I definitely wish that the podcast listeners could see me right now because I've just been like nodding yes the entire time that both Andrea and Beth were talking because I definitely do see um, more organic collaboration taking place in the modern classroom. And I want to um, touch back on what Andrea just said about the arrangement of the classroom and for me, I'm lucky enough in a few of my classes to have co teachers. And what's so helpful about zoning things is that I can see that, okay, we have seven students all on this assignment and six students all on this assignment. And we can do some parallel teaching there and say, okay, all the students who are working on this activity, you're with Mr. Tyler over here everyone who's working on this activity you're with mr foley over there and that's just been um really really helpful and um one other piece i want to mention is that i think this misconception kind of ties back to that first misconception about students just getting all of this work and being in completely different places and this is definitely feeding into this misconception Um, because this misconception said they can't self-pace since they're all working on different lessons or different content. And in reality, if we are using that pacing tracker as formative data and making instructional adjustments based on that data, then we don't have students all working on different activities. There's maybe a range of four or five activities that the 30 kids in my classroom could be working on. And so at any given time, there's going to be other students working on the same assignment as you. You're not gonna be that lone wolf um, who's just working by themselves. Or if you are, it's for like five minutes while someone finishes a must-do to move on to a should-do.
0: Yeah, yeah, you, you caught the misconception embedded within my misconception. <laughs> right you you have more students than lessons they're not all on different lessons right like they they can be grouped together and i think that that's sort of what we're all getting at here is that the the pacing tracker and the the progress data you know that's how we can put our kids into collaborative environments because they can see who to work with you know or or maybe if we don't use a public tracker the teacher can tell them who to work with right we can choose less and all stars who are way ahead of pace. We can group kids together like you were saying john or or and and even spatially right um or the kids can look at it themselves if it's public and projected or or displayed in the room, and they can figure out who to work with so that piece of a self paced class provides the the key to this problem, the solution to this problem, and it takes it above and beyond I think what we would get in a traditional classroom if we were assigning partners or or even just expecting kids to try and ask each other questions um because it's, it becomes part of the class culture andrea i think you were you were mentioning that like it's just part of how the class runs now and so definitely definitely a misconception uh not true
1: i think that does tie back to the metaphor that was used earlier about sort of being Um, a little bit of the puppet master, because we are still in control of what's happening. And so we are choosing those lesson all-stars. We are encouraging certain kids to work together. And sometimes we're encouraging them in ways that feel like encouragement and not assignment. You know, it's not, you must go work with this person. It's an explanation of, hey, here would be the best people for you to work with, and here are the reasons, and they have that autonomy to feel like they're making that decision themselves.
0: Totally. Totally. Wow. What a fantastic discussion. Um to close us out, could you all share how our listeners could connect with you if they wanted to talk? All 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 four of us actually, but all three of you more importantly, are modern classrooms mentors, so real real experts here. And uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing how our listeners could get in touch with you, I think that a lot of people would appreciate that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This is John here. I think um, the easiest way to get in contact with me is my Modern Classrooms email, which is john.tyler at modernclassrooms.org. And that's J-O-H-N, not J-O-N. And I also just recently changed my Facebook and LinkedIn display name so that it sticks out a little bit more. It is John J. Tyler, Jr. That might make me easier to find than just John Tyler.
2: I um, also am totally fine with someone emailing me, um, elizabeth.benavides at modernclassrooms.org. And um, that will be in the show notes, I hope, because I know that's a very long first and last name. Um, And then I'm also on Facebook and in the Facebook group. And um, I would love to connect that way too. If, if a listener is not on the Facebook group, I would highly recommend it because I think that that's a wealth of knowledge and I love, um, just scrolling and seeing the questions and answers that are there. So you can find me there as well.
0: Yep. It will definitely all be in the show notes. And of course, the Facebook group is in the show notes as well. So
2: yeah, totally reach out if you
3: have any questions. Um, I don't have a Modern Classrooms email because I didn't want too many emails. So you can just email me to my Gmail, which would be andrea.l.mar, spelled M-A-H-R, at gmail.com. I am also on the Facebook group or within the Slack channel. So you can find me in any of those portals.
0: Awesome. Well, Andrea, Beth, and John, what a pleasure. What a fantastic discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. This has been so much fun.
2: Yes, it was a blast. Yes,
1: loving it. Yeah, I actually wish this conversation just could just keep going.
0: Well, the conversation will certainly go on in our hearts and minds <laughs> <laughs> as Modern Classrooms teachers. Listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 83. And of course, this episode's recap and transcript will be up on the Modern Classrooms blog on Friday. So you can check back uh, at the show notes here or um, on the blog itself if you're interested in checking those out. But otherwise, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week, and we will be back next Sunday. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast.